It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In New York, I'm John Fassman. And in London, I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Before the war, Ukraine was a global hub for the fertility industry. Now those clinics are being used not only by foreign couples who want a baby, but also to help Ukrainians preserve the hope of a family should a potential father fall in battle. And winters in French forests are mostly quiet and peaceful, except for the gunfire. Hunting season runs from September to February, and an increasing number of accidents has triggered a row about the use of France's countryside. First up, though. This weekend, five more pages of classified documents were revealed to have been found in President Joe Biden's family home in Delaware. The White House disclosing Saturday five additional pages were found in a review of the Wilmington residence. It followed the announcement last week that documents had been discovered in the president's garage and an adjacent room. Aides to President Biden have now found a second batch of classified documents at a new location. And more in his former office at the think tank, the Penn Biden Center. News about the discovery of what appear to be records from the Obama-Biden administration at an office used by Mr. Biden before he became president. Democrats had been making much of the discovery of top secret and classified files at Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago home last August. It seems, at the very least, something of an own goal for the current president and an unexpected gift for Mr. Trump. If we just row back for a second, exactly a week ago, last Monday, the story broke that several classified papers had been found in the Penn Biden think tank in D.C. And they had been found as early as November 2nd. And that's significant because that's a week before the election. That's quite a while ago. Sasha Nauta is our social policy editor and is based in Washington. And then we had this drip feed throughout the week. So then on Thursday, a couple of days later, there was news of a second batch of documents found in Joe Biden's garage in Wilmington, Delaware. And again, then it turned out that some of those had been found on December 20th and one other page had been found actually that day on the Thursday. And there was a back and forth of, is the search now complete? Yes, it's complete. And then on Saturday, just to continue the drip drip, it's like a PR nightmare, really. There was news of another five pages in that same search. And again, questions of, well, why didn't you tell us immediately? So what do you mean when you say then it's a PR nightmare? It's a communications disaster for the Democrats, but particularly for President Biden, because he has been very tough up to this point on what former President Trump has been accused of, namely keeping classified documents in his home in Florida, Mar-a-Lago. 
lots of clips are reappearing with the hashtag hypocrisy of President Biden saying, how on earth can you be that irresponsible? And I thought, what data was in there that may compromise sources and methods? By that, I mean names of people who helped or et cetera. And it's just uh, totally irresponsible. So I think that in itself, even if the intentions, the cooperation with the DOJ now, the number of documents, the type of documents, even if all of that turns out to be quite different between the two cases, the very basic fact of saying it's incredibly irresponsible to take classified documents home and to keep them there after your time in office, being then found out to basically do the same thing, which really does look to be at the heart of this case, is hard to say that that's anything other than hypocritical. And I think the second thing is that if something like this happens, um, (laughs) the smart communication strategy is probably to fess up in one go rather than to have this horrible drip, drip feed where the press is obviously constantly now looking at what's going to be next. So it's a gift to the Republicans who've, of course, just taken over the House and who are understandably uh, milking this and saying we will get to the absolute bottom of this and we will insist that President Biden is treated exactly the same way that Donald Trump is. So it's not a good look. And how has Mr. Biden himself responded to all of this? Well, he hasn't really helped in an attempt to reassure Americans last week. He told the press about why actually the discovery of the documents in his garage wasn't as bad as it looked because he also locked his Corvette in that garage. God willing, soon. But as I said earlier this week, people, and by the way, my Corvette's in a locked garage, okay? So it's not like you're sitting out in the street. But anyway, yes, as well as my Corvette. Um, But as I said earlier this week... Which, of course, led to a lot of online derision and hashtags, etc. And as much as it's a bit of fun online, these are two very different cases, though, aren't they? Yes, at least on the surface, right? There's still lots we don't know. So probably the most important thing we don't know is what is in these documents. And therefore, it's hard to jump to conclusions. But the thing we do know is that a volume, so Trump was hundreds of documents. At the moment, we're still talking under two dozen in Biden's case. And probably the most important thing for now, again, is obstruction. So Trump did everything he could to keep hold of these documents. He obfuscated, he's dragged his feet. He had lawyers sign affidavits claiming that all the documents had been handed over when that turned out not to be the case, etc. So Trump really appears to have done everything he could to obstruct. And to be clear, Mr. Trump and his team deny all wrongdoing in this case. Whereas, based on what we know so far, the Biden team, they didn't fess up to the general public, but they did, on the day that they claimed the first documents were found, immediately contact, as they should have, the National Archives, who then contacted the Department of Justice And the same appears to have happened with the other documents. And I think all of this is quite important because it means that based on what we know so far, Biden's claim that this appears to have been a genuine error and that they have been cooperating with the authorities ever since is really quite different from Mr. Trump's. You know, Mr. Trump's claim is basically that he declassified these documents and there's nothing to worry about. If you're the president of the United States, you can declassify just by saying um, it's declassified, even by thinking about it. 
So the FBI had to go through an awful lot of trouble to get hold of those documents. So a question will be, how important is that obstruction? And once we have a better sense of what the documents actually were, we might also get a better idea as these special counsels get to work of whether there was a difference in, in intent. But almost without prejudice to any of those questions, it seems clear that it's going to be harder to pursue Mr. Trump for that same infraction if Mr. Biden appears to have been guilty on some level, any level, of the same thing. Yes, I think so. I think it's understandable and right that the Attorney General has appointed a special counsel to oversee these investigations, just like he did for Mr. Trump at the end of last year. But it was already difficult to see a prosecution of Mr. Trump going forward. But I think politically that now just becomes not impossible, but it becomes very difficult because the accusation of double standards will just be lurking all the time. But as, as a matter of curiosity, the, the presidency is a complicated business. And unless a president never leaves the White House and secure document locations, then these things will move around. I suppose my question is, is this the sort of thing that has happened a lot in the past and we only know about it because of the laser focus on what Mr. Trump has done? That's a really good question. And the honest answer is we don't really know what we don't know. There is definitely a laser focus now, right? I mean, any <laughs> I would argue that any document that Mr. Biden may have lying around will be found if it hasn't already in a way that I would imagine that kind of search hasn't happened before with previous presidents. I mean, to be clear, the issue here is not that presidents sometimes take classified documents home. They do. And there are clear protocols for that in terms of security, etc. The issue is to hold on to them after your presidency or your vice presidency has ended. And that's why these guys are rightly in trouble. So about the questions that remain then, how do you see this playing out? We now have two essentially parallel investigations into similar conduct. Yes, yeah, so we've got two special counsels who will get to work and you've got a broad remit in the way that special counsels do to investigate. I would imagine that both will be very, very thorough indeed. For Mr. Biden, who we're now focused on, there are some uncomfortable questions that remain. And I think particularly for the general public, there are questions about... Why did it take so long to talk about this stuff? If you're saying this was an honest mistake, why didn't you just tell us, right? It starts to look suspicious when, you, when you've waited. But questions that remain are basically, how did documents from the Obama presidency get to these places and why were they still there? And what kind of information did they contain? Why was there such a delay in the public revelations? And, you know, the questions for, for Donald Trump are somewhat different. We know a little bit more about that because we had the raid, of course. But again, the types of documents, why they were there, a big debate, of course, about whether he had the authority. It is highly doubted that he did to sort of unilaterally declassify them without any formal process there. But that is his claim. So that that's where they are slightly different. And I mean, I guess one thing that is for absolute certain is that the newly empowered Republicans in Congress will surely make it their mission to, to pursue the answers with Mr. Biden. And I guess although the procedural and the legal process will no doubt stretch out for quite a long time trying to get answers to all of these questions, I think for Mr. Biden, the battle for hearts and minds has already been lost. He's really lost the moral high ground on this issue. And I think that will follow him for a very long time to come. Sasha, thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure, Jason. 
Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. In any war... What's sometimes overlooked in an onslaught of statistics, the number of dead and wounded, is the impact on those left behind when troops die in battle, the emptiness felt by loved ones, and the planned for families that can no longer be. But in Ukraine, the wives of soldiers fighting on the front lines have found a solution. In February, all Ukrainians didn't know what will happen to their country and to their lives, And now we all learn how quickly we can adapt to any situation. Marta Rodionova writes about the war in Ukraine for The Economist. Natalia Kirkach-Antonenko lived with her husband for 18 years. And as she said, that was a love from first sign. And they dreamt to have a lot of children and to have a big family. And on February 24th, uh, her husband decided to become a volunteer uh, for the Ukrainian armed forces. And people at the registration office asked him, how shall we call you? Because every soldier in Ukraine has a nickname. And someone shouted like, oh, just call him beautiful. Because Vitaly was a really handsome man with an amazing long hair. In February, um, Natalia was pregnant and because of a big stress, both of the war and the fact that her husband went to fight, she's lost her baby. And after that, they managed to see each other only twice. Once Natalia came to the unit uh, and the other time they decided to go to a reproductive clinic and to freeze the possibility of becoming a father uh, in a cryobank. Unfortunately, on the November the 9th, Natalia's got a phone call from the front line, and she discovered that her husband died. So she still plans to have the family they wanted together, but, but without him, right? Yes, and now she has up to 20 years to use his frozen sperm. Natalia also appealed in her social networks to others who are serving to go to a reproductive clinic as they did to freeze their sperm or eggs for the future. And she says that this way may be the only opportunity to raise the expected and desired children. She wrote this post a month after her husband died. And do you know whether this is something that Natalia and her husband did and it's unusual or is this part of a growing trend? I have visited one of the departments of the largest reproductive centers in Ukraine. The name of it is Mother and Child. Previously, not only patients from Ukraine were treated there. Almost half of them were foreigners, mainly from China, uh, but also Spain, Italy, France, Great Britain and the United States. Now there are only Ukrainians, of course, and 40% of them are military men and women, which brought this medical institution up to 80% of its pre-war capacity. So they decided to encourage more servicemen and women to freeze their sperm or eggs free of charge. 
And also they offer discounts on fertilization programs. And in some cases, all services are provided free of charge. And uh, doctors call this initiative Hero Nation. And tell me more about what you hear from, from doctors offering the service. Dr. Itali that I met uh, said that in addition to the large losses among the population due to the fightings, uh, the birth rate in Ukraine has significantly decreased this year and continues to decline, so they want to help. He said to me that when it's war in your country and you are not at the front, you have to be useful here. And accordingly, everyone should do uh, they can do best. And uh, these doctors are best able to give life to new Ukrainians. So the work in clinic itself is uh, very challenging now because we have a lot of damages uh, on infrastructure in Ukraine. The clinic itself now looks completely covered with different wires because it has to be connected to the generator uh, due to the constant blackouts in Ukraine. And also the conversations with the patient itself, when you have a military couple it's very difficult to talk about the consequences that may happen uh, due to the fight. And uh, mostly their wives are talking, but men are silent. So they try to avoid uh, the conversations about death. So they are more likely to uh, follow the conversation that it's just for you as a backup. And what about the couples themselves? I'm sure that there are obstacles and requirements that exist in wartime that, that wouldn't ordinarily exist, right? Yes. According to Ukrainian legislation, if the person dies, uh, their sperm or eggs is disposed. And there is no uh, legal regulation in case a military person dies at the front and their partner wants to use the biomaterial after death. The clinics have to adapt here as well. And the military is delicately advised to privately sign a power of attorney for their partner with a notary for postmortem reproduction. I spoke to the psychologist, uh, her name is Inna, about this scenario, and she has two points of view on the situation. Uh, first of all, she says that it's very good that Ukrainians freeze their biomaterial because the war took away from Ukrainians the feeling that they have time and that something can be postponed for later, including the birth of a child. So such visits to a reproductive clinic for military families is like a bridge to the future. But on the other hand, in case children born after the deaths of one of their parents can become kind of an object of extensive ex expectations. Uh, she says that the child is not a plaster that will close the wound of loss. Also, a person must learn to live on themselves, but not for the sake of a child, uh, seeing in this child uh, kind of a continuation of their beloved ones. So she advised to think at least for a year before making such decisions. All right, Marta, take good care of yourself. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much.
Bon, on y va, début de track. It's hunting season in France. In the winter, when there's less to do in the fields, many farmers and other locals pick up their guns and head out in search of wild boar, hare, or other game. But hunting presents some risks. In fact, the number of accidents caused by hunting each year has triggered a row about the use of the French countryside. Over a million people in France have hunting permits. That makes it the third most popular sport after football and fishing. Sophie Petter is our Paris bureau chief. Game shooting is really a popular sport. It's not an elite pastime like it is in other countries like the UK. For many local peoples and farmers, it's a sort of social get-together. It's a sport. It's a way to fill the fridge. And it's also a means of pest control. Pest control? What do you mean by that? Well, the French National Forests Office reckon that half of all publicly owned forests have an overpopulation of boar, wild boar, deer, and other game. And the problem with this is it leads to the destruction of little saplings and it hampers the projects for forest regeneration. There are now estimated to be two million wild boars in France. And that's a population that has grown sixfold over the past 30 years. They rootle for acorns and beech nuts. They trample on crops and they cause about 30 million euros of damage to crops each year. And this is why the French authorities have authorized the shooting of wild boar, and in 2021, 842,000 wild boar were legally shot. So it, it sounds like this is helping to manage the local biodiversity. Well, it does, but it's also very controversial hunting. If you take the season in 2021 to 2022, so that would be over the winter period, there were 90 accidental shootings of people and eight were killed. It's lower than it was 20 years ago, but it was more than the previous season. And most of the victims are hunters, but there are also passers-by or hikers, cyclists, who are putting themselves at risk by being in a zone where hunting takes place. In fact, last season, 17% of the accidents were hunters who were shooting towards the footpaths or towards roads or dwellings. There are a couple of very high-profile cases that are well-known in France. A couple of years Years ago, Morgan Keane, who is a young man who was shot while just chopping wood near his home in the Lot region, that was such a controversy that his friends set up a petition and the French Senate, so the Upper House of Parliament, was obliged to launch an inquiry into hunting safety. And it reported back last September with a lot of recommendations. One of them was a ban on alcohol, which it blamed in 9% of the cases of accidents in France. And since then, the rules have been tightened even more. How so? What other restrictions have been put in place? Bérangère Couillard, who is the junior minister in charge of this subject, she unveiled more proposals on January the 9th. There's a 14-point plan which is designed for zero hunting accidents. So, for example, there's going to be a ban on excessive use of alcohol when hunting. There's going to be an app on your iPhone so you can tell where the hunting is taking place. They're going to tighten restrictions on the sort of training that hunters have to undergo, particularly when it comes to the handling of guns. And this obviously enrages hunters because they think that city dwellers are imposing their values on everybody else. But the hunting lobby is powerful in France, and the government hasn't taken up some of the other proposals that have come from anti-hunters, for example, that hunting should be banned on Sundays. But these measures that have been put in place, do you think they'll help reduce casualties? 
Well, that's the intention, of course, and it's hoped that this will at least start to bring the numbers down again. But those in the anti-hunting camp are very disappointed that the new restrictions haven't been tighter on hunting. So hunting will continue, and those who are going for a walk or a hike in the countryside during the winter season in France are still likely to come across the surprising sight of a wild boar speeding along a track in the forest, fleeing from hunters. All right, Sophie, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, John. It's always a pleasure. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. Or leave us a rating wherever you listen. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.